Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. You're listening to What She Said with Candace Sampson, a podcast for Canadian women about Canadian women. A mansplaining free zone, What She Said is here to empower, educate, and entertain you. It's all garbage. I can't remember where I read those three words, but they hit home for me hard, changing the way I consume things drastically. Mostly because that message was a powerful reminder to me that whether it was a tube of toothpaste or a fancy ring on my finger, it was all going to end up in landfill at some point. The problem, though, is that we live in a consumeristic society that is constantly creating want, and trying to lead a life directed by conscious consumption is an uphill battle, especially when the products you buy have a built-in death date. Tara McKenna gets that, and that's why her book, Don't Be Trashy, is such a breath of fresh air, because it delivers endless opportunities for each of us to save the planet in our own way. What works for me may not work for you, and that's okay as long as we are all making changes working towards a common goal. Tara shares ways to reduce your waste month by month, how to learn about your consumption habits with a no-buy month, building capsule wardrobes, and about minimalism in your home. She also expands our three R's to eight, and over the next half hour, Tara and I discuss everything from planned obsolescence to the need for more tinkerers in our lives, all delivered with no judgment. Hi, Tara. Welcome to What She Said. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I have to say, thank you so much for sending me an advanced copy of the book. Um, I read it. I loved it. Uh, but what struck me the most is how non-judgmental you are, uh, which I think is really key in this conversation that we're having right now. Um, are you just normally this way or did you deliberately <laughs> approach the book uh, t- so that to include more people in the conversation? Yeah, so I definitely aspire to be non-judgmental as possible and obviously that comes with learning as I go. But I'll I'll tell you a bit of background first. So when I first started, I guess going zero waste and and that term, you know, I, I prefer low waste, but for the sake of um, the conversation, I think it's helpful to use zero waste simply because it's a really good goal to keep in mind. But anyways, I started documenting my lifestyle on Instagram. I created a a public account, and this was the very first time, like I'd only ever had a private account. So I created a public account to kind of, you know, have some accountability and build a community, meet other people doing the same thing. And the interesting thing that happens when you start, you know, being more public about things that you're doing is that you're going to get a lot of feedback, right? You're going to get a lot of people's opinions and and there are a lot of opinions out there. And I learned quite quickly that, you know, when you start doing something, there are certain expectations that sometimes 
come out that you're supposed to be doing everything, right? So all of a sudden, I'm trying to be, you know, cognizant of bringing my reusable coffee cup to the coffee shop. And then all of a sudden, I'm supposed to be completely vegan on top of that, right? So I wanted to have a middle ground here because I find that a lot of people might be a bit intimidated to join the lifestyle if the expectation is that they need to do all of the things. And I got to a point where even for me, going zero waste was too much because we couldn't maintain that level of, you know, reducing our waste and still, you know, feel like we could fully integrate into our current society and and with family and friends. And you know, it got to a point where my husband was hiding, you know, bags of chips and packages of cookies because we had gone so hardcore that we were trying to pretty much buy no packaged foods if possible. And obviously he was missing some of his favorite treats. Um, so it wasn't really maintainable for us. So we relaxed a little bit, you know, he can have his chips and cookies. I never said he couldn't. I just want to clarify that right now. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I wanted to write a book that was a you do you kind of approach and and not just like about being hardcore, but I, I also want to respect that other people, you know, people have different lifestyle preferences. People have different lifestyle circumstances. You know, I want their cultural um you know, traditions to be integrated into whatever. And I don't know what those are. So whoever's reading the book, it needs to be integrated in a way that works for them. Yeah. And some things like composting, for example, is, you know, each city has a different approach to it. Uh, depending on where you live, uh, composting might not be uh, an easy thing to do. Uh, so it's, it's definitely not for everybody at the same time. Exactly. And that's so true. So I happen to live in a city that's pretty progressive when it comes to things like composting and sorting waste. And that's really great. And like you said, not everybody has access to that. So I have municipal compost. Not everybody has that. So if you don't have that, then you have to kind of figure out, well, how can I compost myself at home and what works for me? And that can be an extra step. And and so when you think about the lifestyle in general, you have to figure out what steps make sense for you. So this book is really uh, a how-to. Uh, you can, you know, how to reduce waste in your life, but you also bring a lot of facts. And so let's talk about some of the scarier facts about the waste we create. Yeah, so I think the the biggest one that really strikes me um, is that only 9% of plastics ever created have been recycled. And I think this is an important one because we've become so accustomed to recycling. And again, it depends on what community you live in. But I think across Canada, a lot, I would say, I imagine most communities have access to um, recycling. And that's that's not true of everywhere because, you know, Northern, uh, Northern Ontario, for example, um, would have less than Southern Ontario. So anyways, I don't want to have black, blanket statements. But, um, you know, I think a lot of us do recycle, right? And and when we do that, we assume that when we put things in our recycling bin, that those items are now going to become brand new, beautiful, amazing products, right? And so when we learn that that's not always the case, and that some of the items we pop into our blue bin are actually going to go to the landfill instead, I think that's a bit devastating, especially considering how much work it is for, for people to do that. It's so frustrating because, you know, I always feel like, oh, I've done such a good deed every time I pop something into the recycle bin. And and to realize that only 9% of it is actually going to be reused, uh, it's incredibly 
frustrating. And so I want to do more. And so, um, but you also talk about uh, planned obsolescence in your, in in the book, and I think this is an important topic to touch on um, because it's frustrating to a know that you whatever you buy almost today is there's a there's a death date for it. <laughs> it's true, yes, and and this is you know something that started in the 1900s and it really picked up speed after World War II. So, you know, 1950s onwards, we're looking at the whole concept of how can we build an economy of consumption um, so that way we've got a productive economy. And as part of that, um, you know, because before, I I guess, like our society was much more, you know, like we're going to have something and we're going to own it for a really long time and we're going to look after it. But you know, in order to build that economy, things need to break or go out of style or whatever. So you go buy a new one. So when I talk about planned obsolescence, it's not just something that's designed to break. So sometimes that is the case. So for example, if you buy, you know, a toaster or any other kind of appliance, sometimes it breaks quickly and they don't last as long as they used to. And and perhaps some people hear their grandparents or parents talk about that, like, oh, they used to last like decades and now they might last a few years and all of a sudden you have to fix them, right? And so that's one element of planned obsolescence. But the other one, and this is a really important one, is the planned obsolescence of style. So that kind of gets us into the fast fashion discussion of where, you know, style is changing every few weeks. And so a lot of people, depending on, you know, the context that they're in, or if they're following influencers on social media, want to change up their wardrobes quite quickly. I find, though, that that fashion, uh, you know, that fast fashion for clothing has also translated into things like furniture and appliances. You know, I was in I was in a store the other day and I noticed their appliance line is now navy blue. And, you know, the price tag reflected, of course, that it's you're buying a navy blue uh, washer and dryer. Uh, and so I guess that must be on trend. And it, next year, it might be, you know, black or silver. And so the fashion of appliances is even out there, which seems crazy to me. It's true. Like we're seeing, you know, fast furniture alongside fast fashion. And we're, you know, I never really thought about it until more recently, like in the last few years, but like disposable furniture, that just doesn't seem quite right, does it? Right? Like, I'm going to buy a couch and a couple of years later, I'm going to throw it out and buy a new one. That's definitely not sustainable, but that's definitely where we're going. Yeah, it, it feels um, it's wrong for sure. Uh, but it's a reset for us as a society to step back and say, is this really important that I replace my couch every couple of years? Um, let's talk about decluttering and minimalism then, which is chapter two in your book. Because um, I think this is a big one. I know that certainly... On a personal level, I'm going through these, this massive shift where I've moved a couple of times. I'm, I'm now moving into a home that had to be completely gutted. Uh, it's caused a lot of waste. And with that, for me, carries a lot of guilt. Uh, I feel bad every time something has to go to landfill or I can't repurpose it. Um, and one of the things I remember reading recently about this whole conversation was it's all garbage. And if you look around everything in your house right now and you really think about it, it's all garbage. That's literally, it's all going to end up in landfill at some point in its life, right? And so these Mm -hmm. conversations about decluttering, I think, well, if I get rid of it, it's still going to end up in landfill. 
Yeah. Okay. So I really like that perspective. And, you know, <laughs> it's true. All of the things that are home one day will be trash, essentially. There's only so many times that things, at least in our current society, the way we reuse materials, like ideally we would move towards a circular economy in which nothing is wasted and everything becomes part of a new product. Um, but for now, we're not quite there. And you know, it's a good point you mentioned this because I always feel like it's a little contradictory almost to have a, a, you know, a chapter dedicated to decluttering in my book. And it's not just decluttering, it's minimalism as well, because it's like once you declutter, it's important to, you know, reduce the amount of stuff that's coming back into your home. So you're not recluttering in a sense, right? But from a decluttering perspective, um, there's a couple elements. So obviously you were dealing with some renovations and some of that was clearly, you know, waste that could not, for whatever reason, be reused. But if, say, you're going through the items in your home that can be rehomed quite, you know, quite often, you can find new homes for them. And and that's a challenge because it really depends how much time you have to dedicate to that process. And if you're doing an entire home all at one time, it's like, okay, well, how much time do I have to go through every single individual item? But if it's a slower process, then it's definitely a little bit easier to, you know, snap a photo, put that on for free on Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace or a buy nothing group. There's a lot of ways to share those items with other people so that they get properly rehomed. Um, But if, like you said, you're downsizing or changing homes, sometimes the capacity or time or whatever is not there. So it's doing whatever you can with the time that you have to try to rehome those items. But the things that you have in your home, if you're not using them and they're just sitting there collecting dust, in a sense, aren't they just, like you said, trash in your home? So so I suggest to people, don't keep the trash in your home. Either find a new home for it or unfortunately, um, put it in the trash and let the guilt go out with it. And then you can learn from that experience because you know you've, you can assess each item that you're getting rid of and be like, okay do I need to make similar purchases moving forward? And this is getting into that minimalism piece. You know, once you're getting rid of all these things, I think it helps you to reassess, okay, when I go shopping next, I got rid of such and such item. I don't need those items again. And uh, for me, I'll give you a specific example. You know, I used to have a big collection of nail polish and I talk about this in the book in particular, And I would spend like $20, $25 on fancy nail polish, but I collected them and I just wasn't painting my nails that much. So these nail polish bottles were collecting, you know, in my cupboard and I'd look at them and like, oh, they're so pretty, but I don't use them. So I decided to, you know, pass them along to a friend who was going to use them. So then they were out of my home. She's going to enjoy them. And then I chose from that moment forward to never buy another bottle of nail polish again. And so I'm not recluttering and, you know, I'm reducing my consumption. And then if I want my nails painted, I can go get a manicure or pedicure. So I I think too, one of the conversations that I hear a lot about minimalism is that it comes with a certain, you know, lifestyle, like it's minimalism as an aesthetic, not a lifestyle that it costs money to maintain minimalism. And, uh, you know, what have we, have we confused what minimalism is? Well, I definitely agree. There is a minimalist aesthetic, but there's also the minimalism kind of lifestyle. And I definitely try to emphasize in the book that it's more of like a lifestyle choice 
at the end of the day, your aesthetic is totally up to you and your personal preference. If you like, you know, if you're on Pinterest or Instagram and you have a specific taste that's like a minimalist aesthetic, then by all means, go for it. But otherwise, from a, a lifestyle perspective, it's ultimately about, you know, consuming less and consuming what works for you, right? And, and de determining, you know, what does your best life look like? And, you know, it's not about telling people to stop collecting things, you know, if you want to collect a specific item, because that, you know, brings you joy or helps you live your best life, and you're actually using those items or enjoying them, then go for it. Um, but then perhaps consider being, being a bit more minimalist in other areas of your life. And also, consider what that looks like for your cultural preferences or your religious preferences or whatever your lifestyle preferences are. How can you integrate minimalism, which is really like living with less and, you know, whether that's less waste or less stuff, and then just finding ways to, you know, enjoy your best life. And that might be pursuing hobbies or enjoying time with family and friends. Like, what do you want to fill that time with if it's, you know, not spent shopping or uh, consuming the extra stuff that perhaps you've decided to move on from. It's breaking that cycle. You said, you know, not spending your time shopping. It's that has become a literal hobby for people. Uh, you know, I was victim of it myself. I'd say, oh, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, I would joke about retail therapy. And uh, my mindset has shifted, obviously, because I've had to embrace some new things through this pandemic. Um, but as the world is opening up again, it's a good time for us to all sort of think about conscious consumption. Um, and you talk about that in your book. And so any tips for people who are looking to embrace that uh, before they go out and start madly buying things for their home as as the world reopens? Yeah, for sure. And I think people are already, you know, making a lot of purchases. A lot of items are on, on back order these days, and there's a lot of supply chain issues. And I think being stuck at home makes people realize that they want to to change a lot of things in their house. And I'm certainly, you know, noticing that myself too, right? Just because I, you know, promote low waste living and minimalism doesn't mean I also, you know, I'm, I'm stuck at home too. And certainly I've spent some time thinking like, oh, I could, you know, have a new backsplash or whatever. Um, okay, this is totally embarrassing. I think I got completely off track here. Um, <laughs> Question. Isn't it awful? Oh my gosh, has this ever happened on a podcast and we're recording? Anyways. Uh, it's okay. We can edit later. I might keep it in though because it's kind of fun. No, no. This is funny. <laughs> no, this was about shopping. Um, remind me where we were going with Conscious that. consumption. Conscious oh, consumption. Right. Okay, yeah. yes. Okay. I was like, new backsplash. Hmm. <laughs> okay. So, conscious so you were guilty too of getting sidetracked by... <laughs> Right. Uh, buy things in your home. We all do it. This is good to know. Right. No, it's true. So um, what I like to suggest is the less but better method. So if you are in a place where you want to buy something, which, you know, we all will be at some point, um, but consider how you can make those purchases in a more conscious way. And I think this ties nicely into planned obsolescence. So we'll take the example of, say, a kitchen appliance in your home breaks down. Um, and using the less but better method will give you an, a chance to assess, okay, what is my next step? So if your appliance breaks, um, maybe it's a mixer, for example. 
you can either, you know, choose to repair it, which is a really great place to start because if you repair it, then you don't need to buy something new altogether. You avoid something, you know, going to landfill. And if for whatever reason you can't repair it and you know for sure that you want to replace it because you are going to use it, then there's your opportunity to figure out, okay, well, I know I'm going to buy another one. This one will no longer, you know, help and serve me. So then it's like, okay, can you get it for free somewhere? Maybe someone has an extra mixer that they don't need. You know, you can ask your friends, ask your family and so forth. Um, and if you can't find one there or online for free, then you can start checking out secondhand. And then from there, see if there are sustainable and ethical brands that, you know, you can buy from and then ultimately see if you can buy something that's got longevity. So something that is good quality and that's the whole less but better you know the better piece is like buying something that will you know stand the test of time and there they do exist out there right so reading reviews or looking at warranties and those things really help to make sure that we're buying stuff that will last in our homes for a really long time and also i i think it's also important to consider style too right it's hard to say what our tastes will be next year or five years or ten years from now but try and keep it on a more timeless you know style in order to ensure that you like it next year if you can, right? So there's all of these elements that can help you make a better purchase moving forward. Um, and then the less piece is just buying less if possible overall. You you mentioned something in the book, which I, I, I thought, oh, hey, I do that. I, you know, I, I felt so great. Uh, you, you said that when you, you see something in a store, you write it down and you walk away and think about it. And, and I do yes. that. I, I often take pictures of things on my phone or put it on a list on my phone. And, and then I think if I really, really want it, I'll go back for it. And I have to say 95% of the time, I never go back for it and I don't really want it. And just that small shift in my mentality has stopped me from purchasing things on a whim, um, which was really less about the environment uh, and more about my wallet, but helps both ways. I'm really glad you bring up that point about your wallet, because, you know, when I think about the benefits of this lifestyle, saving money is a huge piece because we have access, you know, to credit cards. And a lot of us, you know, tend to pile on the credit card debt, right? You know, I think for so many years, like most of my 20s, I was just like, barely just trying to keep up with paying off my credit card each month. And it's not like I stopped to think about like, oh, like maybe I shouldn't buy that new top, but I've got a credit card. So I'm going to pop it on my credit card, right? So um, but getting back to that whole idea of waiting, it, you can like sleep on it, give yourself 24 hours, I would say give yourself a week or two to think about a new purchase, because chances are you're going to forget about it or recognize you didn't need it. And it helps you to avoid buyer's remorse. I mean, I think about how many times I've bought stuff in the past and been like, why did I buy this? I don't need it. Or if it's a piece of clothing, it matches nothing in my wardrobe. So it wasn't really a, a specifically conscious choice. It was just an impulse purchase that results in a bit of a hangover for my wallet and for, you know, just like, oh, what do I do with it now? This is why I don't have any artwork on any walls in my house, nothing, because I know I'm going to be sick of it in a month or two. And so I, I would rather just have my walls bare <laughs> because I'm so fickle when it comes to that, that I've just actually just banned buying artwork for, for myself and just have gone with the bare walls. Um, so I, and I think there's another thing you mentioned in here. I'm going to back it up just a little bit, 
where there's a little bit of a missed opportunity in our economy right now. And I hope we see a resurgence of it are more people who repair items. Um, you don't see a lot of those, you know, people who come around and fix your uh, mixer, uh, you know, fix your laundry mat, your, your, sorry, washer and dryer, uh, all of those things. It seems like that's sort of because we tend to, instead of fix, we replace. So yeah. I wonder if we're going to see a resurgence in sort of your handyman uh, in our economy as people shift towards keeping the things they have in working condition. I definitely hope so. But I think you're right. We're, we're definitely losing the tinkerers and the people who, you know, take things apart to figure out how they can put them back together and also fix those items. So in the city that I live in, we have what's called um, a tool library, which is really cool because instead of, you know, owning all of the tools, you can go and rent these tools instead. So say you um, need a drill and you don't want to buy a drill because you're only going to use it, you know, a couple times a year, then you can go and borrow a drill from the tool library and return it. And the other cool program that they have is a repair cafe. So volunteers will come out and fix and repair your items. And they have different areas of expertise from electronics to, you know, someone who's going to be able to sew up a hole in your pants or whatever. And that's a really cool community initiative that I'm hoping to see more of. And I know um, there's quite a few communities across Canada that have um tool libraries and offer repair cafes. They don't always have to be associated. Um, so definitely Google that in your area if that's something that interests you. Um, but it, when I go back to that whole conversation, so my husband and I actually, we um, were like small scale real estate investors. And, and the point there is that when we have properties that we're renting out, it's important to us to buy appliances that have longevity, exactly for all of the reasons we're talking about here. And so we have a really great appliance, you know, business in town that we use. And we ask the questions, we literally ask, we're like, which ones break all the time? You know, which ones are hard to repair? And when we ask those questions, we get the chance to learn like, oh, like these, these are the ones that last a long time. And we're like, those are the ones we want because, you know, obviously it makes sense to not have to repair these things. So, you know, it's as, as often as possible, or if it needs repaired, then to go get it repaired. So there's a lot of opportunities, perhaps even if, you know, repair cafes don't exist in your town to talk to the experts in those, you know, products to find out what works best and, you know, to repair your stuff if possible. Are you naming names? Do you have any names you can share with us of appliances we should not buy? <laughs> well, I'm not going to like throw out any because I certainly don't want to get sued today. So, um, All right, I'll ask you, I'll ask you over the, after the show's over. Wink, wink. <laughs> Um, All right. So I want to talk about no buy month uh, just to wrap up this podcast, because I think a lot of people think that's impossible. I could never do a no buy month. So let's talk a little bit about what that looks like. And is there a specific month for it? Or is it just sort of any month you want? Because I know we just came through dry January, for example. So is there a specific month dedicated to no buy? 
Well, it can definitely be any time of the year, but I'll tell you that the year, the first year I did it, I did pick January. So yes, on top of dry January, don't spend any money on top of, um, you know, everything else that you've got going on. So basically, it's just picking a length of time where you're only going to buy the essentials. So, you know, paying your bills, buying your groceries, getting your toiletries, and then make your own list. Like what is on your no buy list and what is on your buy list? So you get to make the rules. But for me, it was like choosing not to spend money on clothes, on home decor, on, you know, anything that you would spend your disposable income on um, that wasn't necessary. And I chose to do it in a you know, January, because I find that there's a a big shopping frenzy in the fall, um, just leading up to the holiday season, because a lot of people are buying gifts. And, and so with that, you know, sometimes we have a bit of a credit card hangover in January. And I just figured it was a really great time to get uh, a hold on my own finances. But it's more than just a financial piece. It's again, that kind of like if shopping has become a habit, or you're into retail therapy, or it's a hobby or any of those things, it gives you a chance to kind of like, create some boundaries, some healthy boundaries and rules that, you know, these are up to you, right? Like, I'm, I'm not telling people how to do this. But this will give them, you know, some self reflection, okay, like, like, I, earlier, I mentioned, like, what do you want to do with your free time, if you're not thinking about shopping, and you're not spending time online shopping or shopping in person? What are you going to do with that time? It's a really great self-reflection opportunity. Yeah, I think movements like these, like dry January or, you know, no no buy months, I think they're great experiments that we can conduct ourselves and just collect data on how we live. And it can really shift your mindset towards things. Like if you go 30 days without buying something, um, you'll you'll likely notice what you can live without easily. Did you find that? Yes, I did. And, you know, one thing that I like to shop for, um, whether it's secondhand or, you know, finding sustainable and ethical brands is clothing. And so it was a good opportunity for me to be like, nope, no clothing, right? And as much as I'm a a huge advocate of having a capsule wardrobe, um, there are times and I'm very conscious about curating my closet, but I'm, you know, I'm a browser too. I like to browse, okay, what's going on in, in fashion and not from a trendy perspective, but definitely like a like conscious curated sustainable closet. And so I was just, you know, okay. And, and like I said, I, I use a wish list, right? I don't go shopping impulse buying or anything like that. And I was like, okay, maybe I just don't need a wish list right now. Maybe I can just completely forget about my closet. And that was a huge driver for me is that I just didn't want to buy any clothes, right? And, you know, I'm not constantly shopping for a home decor. And it was just a great reflection that way. But I will say, um, it's been a bit harder this past year, because last year, this time last year, I got pregnant, and my body changed a lot. So it was kind of inevitable that I had to change up my closet and my, you know, postpartum body is not the same either. So I've had to refresh my closet. And thankfully, you know, I've had a lot of friends who are going through pregnancies around the same time. So I've been getting clothes from friends or shopping secondhand, and then also grabbing some, you know, sustainable and ethical pieces, but life, life changes. And with that, we have to uh, modify accordingly. So you also, just before we wrap up here, you work with a lot of companies to help them uh, define their, you know, environmental action plans and so on. So who are some of the companies you've worked with? Um, Well, saying like 
we're talking about fashion. Um, I really love uh, Encircled. They're a clothing company based in Toronto and everything is made in Canada, which I really love. And they are not like pushing like brand new clothes every other week. It's very much more like building a capsule closet, right? They're a B Corp Um, business as well, are they not? Yes. And so they have to meet a very specific set of like standards and requirements from an environmental and social perspective. So making sure that, you know, their employees are treated well and the environment is treated well as well. Okay. And and sorry, other companies you've worked with of A&W, correct? Yeah. So they were getting a few years ago, getting rid of their plastic straws. So that was a huge movement for them. Um, And I've also worked with Corona Canada and they were getting rid of, um, you know how you have those plastic, the plastic rings that um, put you like hold like a six pack of cans together, for example, they were replacing that with a non-plastic alternative. So it's really great to see these companies adopting changes that are, you know, making a difference um, because they're leaders, right? They're large companies, they have huge impact. So it's really great. It's, it might not be perfect, right? You know, when you're looking at fast food chains, they still have, you know, impacts from the fact that there's takeout containers still. But if we can rem- remove some elements that have impact, I think that makes a big difference. There's a great business called uh, My Supply. I've had them on the show. Uh, they do reusable takeout containers with restaurants in Toronto. So that's a great thing to see. Uh, is there anything you see, though, for businesses that, that that they're doing that drives you crazy? Like I can give you one of mine. It's the little green stick in my coffee drives me absolutely nuts because it's in my coffee for about a half a second before I remove it and drink my coffee and it's landfill forever. Um, so is there yes. something out there you see that drives you bonkers that you wish would just go away? Yeah. You know, um, the, so when you go to a, a rested down restaurant and I like drinking tea and it drives me nuts that they come out with the little milk containers And I'm like, why can't you just, you know, come out with a little ramekin of milk and you don't have to bring out these containers at all. So that that's something I would like to see become obsolete for sure. (laughs) All right. Excellent. So um, where can people find the book and connect to you? Because you obviously are sharing information outside of the book all the time on your website and your social channels. So could you share uh, all the places people can connect with you and find your book, please? Yeah. Okay. So my website and blog is called the Zero Waste Collective, and it's simply thezerowastecollective.com. And I'm most active on Instagram on zero.waste.collective. And my personal account is mindfully.tara. And as for the book, it's available basically wherever books are sold. So if you want to support your local bookstore, there's a good chance that they'll have it. Um, And you can also check out larger companies like Indigo and Amazon. It's, It's available everywhere. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tara. Thank you so much. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga, 
It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at averyrich.com. Hi, I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.